Get that RKO sound. How are you going to sit? Um, well, I'd like to sit like that, but I probably shouldn't, so. Yeah. Well, I guess I have to. Yeah. Video Trump's you know, audio any day. Yeah. Okay. Get you going. Okay. You know probably more than I do. Let me get a piece of this. Sure. Can you pass me my bag? Yeah. Actually, I'm just going to look out there. That's cool. You guys listen to rap today, huh? We pull audio off of that. Do you really? Yeah. That's so interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not far away. In my house. I don't know. Are you going to lean in? I guess uh, no. Well, that's good. Uh, Trent, what is that? Oh, headphone. Thanks. Okay. Hi, Jonathan. Hi there. This is Krista. Hi, Krista. How are you? Good. Um, I'm hearing an echo, but I, I wonder if there's a door open or something. <laughs> that would do it. Okay. Um, yes, I'm not hearing that anymore. Um, do you have any questions of me before we start? Have you heard the show? Uh, I've heard the show before. I'd love to get a little bit, even if it's a 30 seconds of prep, about the kind of questions you want to ask me, so at least I can mentally prepare and be okay. as you know, articulate as possible. So you only need 30 seconds of mental preparation. That's well, good. I'd ideally <laughs> like more, but... I'm, I have I'm the headphones not, on. I'm in yeah. the studio. I guess, no, so I'm not going to ask you. I'm going to ask you. I think questions about things you think about all the time. And I've mm -hmm. uh, listened to some of the speeches you've given, and been reading interviews with you, and looking at <clears throat> at your work and and websites of uh, Good Magazine and Ethos Water. And so, um, what I really want to do um, is talk. Is is just get your perspective on some of the things that are on our minds culturally, um, mm -hmm. including, um, you know, how do you think about morality and business and, uh, and how, how is the world changing? How is technology changing? I'm interested in how you talk about the fusion um, for, for your generation or from your perspective of public sector mm -hmm. and private sector and, you know, what is social entrepreneurialism? Things that you, that you think about all the time. Okay. And what I do, um, if you've heard the show, I'm interested very much in both what you know about the world um, and also your personal experience. Um, so, you know, and I think that you you um, are very comfortable talking at that uh, at that intersection anyway. Okay. Okay. That sounds great. Well, I'll tell you, I'm a fan of the show. I find it really thoughtful and really provocative. And so for me, it's really a privilege to have the chance to talk with you. Today. Oh, great. Well, thank you. And you're in Los Angeles? That, I am. Okay. Um, I'm, in the, I'm in the Frank Stanton Studios. Are you? <laughs> Our I studios. Exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. All right. Well, then let's just go. Now, I will say that, that you know, I really do want to talk to you about some of the some big issues of our time. Um, but again, you know, from just from your point of view, I don't expect for you to, to be an expert, ex except to the extent that you are an expert in your own life um, mm -hmm. and in the work you do and the people you come into contact with. Um, and I'm not exactly sure how 
I have a bunch of questions. I'm not exactly sure the direction or the tra- trajectory this will take, and I'm comfortable with that if you are. Um, and we, so we, we get to have a real conversation. It just, you know, we will edit it down. It doesn't have to be even especially linear. So that's a real luxury okay. of this kind of interview. Um, now, where I often start um, with my interviews, who you know, whether I'm talking to a quantum physicist or an environmentalist um, or a theologian, I will often ask someone about um, the religious background of their childhood. Um, mm-hmm. I was looking at, and I know you're not with Ethos Water anymore, but I, I was looking at the definition that's on the, the website there. Um, yeah. Ethos is the distinguishing character, sentiment, moral nature, or guiding beliefs of a person, group, or institution. And so I thought maybe the question I would ask you is, you know, where, what is, how would you talk about your ethos, of, the ethos of your life, and where, how was it formed? Where, does, mm-hmm. where did that come from? So I think that as I think about the things that I've done, I definitely sort of reflect upon the influences in my life. And for me, that starts with growing up in a small town in Connecticut. And I was born with family where my father, my, grand, my paternal grandfather, uh, had escaped Nazi Germany as a young man. And he was Jewish. And suffice to say, it was a pretty terrible place to be in the late 30s. And, you know, the family legend has it that he, he was born in the free city of Danzig, which I think was German at the time. Now mm-hmm. it's Polish. It's called Gdansk. And he lived, spent most of his life in a place called Magdeburg, which was a small town near Potsdam in what uh, right. was once East Germany. And uh, he lived, you know, his family had been German their entire lives. And so I don't think they ever imagined they would live anywhere other than there. And of course, um, things got very bad in the mid-30s. He had a friend of the family who was a police officer who told him, you know, you need to leave and you need, the Nuremberg laws were upon them already. And he said, you know, you need to leave and you need to leave now. And so my grandfather took his life savings and got a brother and a sister out with the intent. And again, the family lore has it, mm-hmm. Krista, that he got out on the last boat, right. uh, so to speak, which I'm sure every family has that right, story. Right. But he, he did leave in like late 1938 at a time. He had to sneak out. It was a time it was very oh. difficult. Um, and when he came to America, the intent was always that he would he didn't have any money when he came to the country, so he would send money back to take his mother and his other siblings and nieces and nephews out. And, of course, they never had that opportunity mm. because they all perished in the Holocaust. Right. So um, my, my, maternal grand, my paternal grandmother, was also, she escaped from Russia as a young person, and my mom's family had fled from Hungary. So I grew up with uh, first-generation parents whose lives were, in a way, about displacement and uh, displacement because of their Jewish identity. Mm. And my family wasn't overly observant, but we were uh, practicing conservative Jews whose, again, life had really been influenced by these origins and by Mm. that displacement from Europe. So it was always certainly on my mind. And it was always part of our milieu, uh, being aware of who we were and practicing the religion and being informed by a Jewish ethos. And and I would say as well that my parents were also um, were pretty amazing people. They were born and raised in the same town. Uh, also believed in this idea of service. And so when I was a young person, probably eight or nine, I was in Hebrew school, and my parents had me with other students from my Hebrew school participating in marches in Bridgeport, Connecticut, 
to free the Soviet Jews. Oh, right. Because at that, that the era. time, mm-hmm. yeah, at the time of the late 70s, uh, the Soviet Union was very, very sort of hostile to its Jewish population. Didn't let them hold certain jobs. Didn't let them get certain education. It prevented them from practicing their religion. So there was this movement afoot to, you know, to free the refuseniks, to free the Soviet Jews. And so my parents believed um, that we needed to participate and to be present. And so I think that as I think about my personal ethos, um, it is certainly one that is influenced by my Jewish upbringing and my Jewish roots. And I think about that ethos as not only one rooted in Judaism as a religion that we practice and we go to the synagogue every Saturday, but it's also a religion that teaches you an ethos of service and an ethos of, um, you know, tzedakah. And so for us, that meant helping to feed the Soviet Jews. That meant donating money to help Jews escape uh, Ethiopia and settle in Israel or settle in the United States. And that meant always being aware of the fact that life is simply very transient and we have an obligation to tikkun olam to repair the world. And right. it's something that I deeply believe in. When were you in college then? What years? I was in college. I went to Tufts University uh, outside of Boston from 1988 to 1992. Okay. You know, and I'm curious about, um, I, I think that we can look back on that. We can we can see now um, better in hindsight than, than probably at the time that that was a moment of incredible flux globally, mm-hmm. that so mm-hmm. much was changing. Mm-hmm. Um and I'm just curious if you think about those years, um, because you did you did come out of college and immediately were very entrepreneurial and active. But I'm, you know, what what kinds of ideas were there for you and your friends about, you know, what you would do with your lives and why, and uh, what kind of influence you wanted to have on the world as you saw it? Sure, I mean Tufts is a wonderful place. It's a very sort of fertile campus in terms of ideas, and for someone like me who was born and raised in this town in New England, never really left. It was a real eye-opener to have students and my dorm mates and my friends who were from all over the country, in some cases from all over the world, just an exposure to issues that I had never thought about before. And so, for example, I had a very one of the most formative experiences for me was in my junior year, I studied abroad. I lived in Spain. And that was, at the, that was the, during the run-up to the first Gulf War. Mm. And it was really illuminating when I remember reading the, the Spanish newspapers in Madrid, like El Pais, and the news about uh, the United States would show up on page six or page seven. And it was, it was very metaphoric for me for realizing that, you know, the United States isn't really the center of the universe. Mm. Boston is the center of the universe. In fact, we live in a very multipolar world. And it was eye-opening because I realized that our point of view and our perspective isn't one that's necessarily shared. At the time, Spain really wasn't so keen, certainly the population, Spanish population, wasn't so keen on the war rumblings that were, that George Bush Sr. was, uh, sort of, that were emanating from Washington. So when I, I'll tell you, I, and I also worked, so I had that one inkling, which was, we actually live in a much more complicated place than I had grown up to believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a real eye-opener. I think a second eye-opener was sort of back to my Jewish faith. After uh, the end of the semester, I traveled alone, and literally from Madrid, I took trains and whatnot and went all the way out to eastern Germany to see the town where my grandfather was from. Oh, Magdeburg? Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. This was a month or two after the wall had fallen in 1990. <laughs> right. 
and it was very arresting. Uh, the town was filled with uh, Soviet soldiers. And the wall was still up in, in Berlin. The town was filled with Soviet soldiers, and there were no Jews left. I didn't speak German, and I had a, you know, a dictionary to try to translate my way, if you will, to where he was from. But there were just no Jews left. And I remember being in Berlin and seeing the great synagogue, which has been you know, decimated during the war. Yes. And uh, there was all kinds of problems. The East German government wasn't repairing it. And so I saw these, I saw Anne Frank's house in the Netherlands. I saw the Jewish ghetto in Prague. And I had these constant reminders about the fact that my own background was one of displacement and the need to be very aware and very present in where I am today because it's certainly very influenced from where we've come. And yet this global era that we've entered and that we were entering at that time um, presents a displacement uh, in, a, mm-hmm. in a very different form than the one your grandfather mm-hmm. experienced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that we definitely live in volatile times. We definitely live in times which we're constantly reminded about the the perils of American exceptionalism because I think we live in a world today where uh, there are other powers and there are emerging forces and they don't necessarily believe in the notion of exceptionalism which has characterized American foreign policy and characterized our sort of national view for, for decades, So, I, if, if not centuries. So I think there's some real challenges as a country we're facing in an environment that's somewhat difficult to predict. Yeah, did you want to say something? Did you? Well, yeah, I think the other thing to say, it's funny that you caught that. <laughs> uh, the technology is amazing. Remarkable. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing to note is when I came back from, when I came back from Europe, I was really committed uh, to doing what I could to make the world better. And living abroad and seeing, again, those roots really affected me. And I was working to pay for school. I was working. I had all these odd jobs as a busboy, as a dishwasher, making pizzas, scooping ice cream, et cetera, et cetera. But it was a wonderful time to be in college because living in Boston during a presidential cycle, and this had been after 12 years of Reagan, Reagan, Bush, (laughs) uh, meant that all of those candidates came sort of traipsing across the college campuses on their way to New Hampshire giving speeches, doing debates, et cetera. And I had the good fortune to be sort of, you know, a spectator and saw these different candidates like Bob Kerry, uh, the senator from Nebraska, Tom Harkin, the senator from uh, Iowa, a number of others, including um, Paul Songus, who was a senator from Massachusetts, and Bill Clinton, who was the governor mm-hmm. from Arkansas. And his message of um, for national service an important part of his plank was that young people could take a gap year to help pay for college or after college could uh, volunteer in their communities to help offset their college tuition and their student loans. That really deeply resonated with me. And he also talked about health care, which was a priority for him way back when. And my father, who was an entrepreneur and self-employed, always had challenges with health care. Hmm. So at a time in my life when... I was ready to participate and to be engaged. To be present during the elections inspired me. And I remember going to my parents as I was preparing to graduate and saying, I know what my plans are. When I graduate from college, I'm not going to go to law school. 
I'm not going to go to business school. I'm not going to be a consultant. These are all paths that my friends were taking, and this is sort of the well-tread paths. Mm-hmm. I said, what I want to do is wait tables in Harvard Square <laughs> um, so I can volunteer for Governor Clinton's presidential campaign. And my parents thought I was nuts. They really, uh, very apolitical. <laughs> and they, I was the first in my family to graduate from college. And uh, they thought the idea of me shucking away that college education to go volunteer for this governor who, by the way, everyone thought was going to lose. Right. Uh, a long so shot it, candidate. Then. It was a long shot. So to, so to describe the trajectory for me, you did go work for the campaign and mm-hmm. then you worked for Bill mm-hmm. Clinton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I waited tables as I could volunteer for the campaign. Campaigns are, are uh, marvelous. I mean, they're wonderful experiences, particularly presidential campaigns. And uh, they're real meritocracies. So as I was doing a good job and performing, my bosses wanted more of my time. So I shifted from waiting tables during the day to wait tables during the nights and on the weekends to eventually they paid me a very small sort of stipend to go work full-time on the campaign. And then immediately after uh, the the presidential, um, excuse me, the Democratic Convention, which took place in New York that year, uh, I moved to Arkansas and worked for Governor Clinton and his national field director at the headquarters in Little Rock. And it was just a remarkable experience. Um, as, you know, presidential campaigns are like startups. <laughs> and there's a, level of, mm-hmm. there's a level of intensity and a level of camaraderie, which is uh, just a, a, a wonderful thing. And it was a terrific experience in lots of ways, not the least of which was that we actually won. Right. And, uh, it was a successful startup. It was a successful startup, and I was 21 at the time, and a lot of the people with whom I worked had worked on Carter II or had worked on Mondale or had worked on Dukakis. And so there were a lot of people for whom this was a a victory they had waited for since 1976. Mm. And I remember <laughs> I rolled up in 1992, and I was one for one, and I felt pretty good about myself. <laughs> so. Um. When when was it then that you um, and how did you how did you transition from that political work to uh, becoming a co-founder of um, Ethos Water of that business startup? Sure, sure. So I wanted to change the world, and working for Governor Clinton allowed me to do that. Then I moved to Washington. I spent a few years working for a gentleman by the name of Ron Brown, who was the Commerce Secretary. Where I worked yeah. on international economic policy, worked basically emerging markets in Asia and Latin America as well as post-conflict economies all around the world, thinking about how we could use trade and investment to help uh, drive nascent, let's say, political processes or whatnot. Um, shifted from there over to the White House, where I spent a couple of years staffing something at the National Economic Council, an effort to do more, again, on the international trade front. Grad After leaving, uh, I left the White House in 97 to attend business school, Graduated from business school in 99, joined a very small um, high-tech startup out here in L.A. that promised to change the world of real estate. It was a company called Realtor.com. Right, right. Um, I joined fairly early on, was the first product manager they hired, and the company ended up scaling and being fairly successful. And then I left that in uh, 2003, 2002, 2003, after I got a call from a classmate from business school, my friend Peter Thume. And Peter and I had actually been roommates at Kellogg uh, in Evanston. And Peter had gone on to work for McKinsey & Company. 
And it was there while working for McKinsey, he was actually on a consulting engagement in South Africa where he developed the idea for ethos. He saw people living without water. He had something of a beverage background and also then went to work for a beverage client and thought there are billions of people in need of clean drinking water and there are there's a multi-billion dollar market for bottled water. How can we bring those the people in need together with the, the haves and the have-nots, if you will? Mm-hmm. And he started doing some research around that. He asked me, and I helped him with that market research. Um, he continued to push the idea forward and then came to me and said, hey, I've got sort of a plan. I'd like to start this company. Why don't we do that together? And so the two of us founded Ethos Water in 2002 um, as a premium bottled water designed to help children around the world get clean water. So, you know, I want to ask you this question, which has a lot of resonance with where we are today. I mean, we're today, even just today as we're speaking, we're we're surrounded by um, tales of corruption and greed in business. Um, And, you know, in the 1990s, or in 2001, I believe, it's when the Enron scandal became public and you had Archer Daniels Midland. I mean, you, you know, we've had this specter in American life of, um, sorry, of um, what looks like somehow a broken and corrupt, I mean, clearly it's not, it's not every business, but, but all, but still a sense that there's something very wrong um, in the way companies are structured and even in, in some venerable, venerable enterprises. And I mean, that, that has, that was a backdrop to your years of political formation and entering business and, I'm just curious about how you then and now analyze um, what what has gone wrong um, and what it means, and how you how what you're doing represents um, a different evolution, perhaps or a correction. Well, I think it's a good question. I think that um, I mean a couple of things. Number one, I'm not sure that business has gone wrong today in a way that's different than in the past, I think there's an uncomfortably close relationship between the way our political system works vis-a-vis campaign funding and corporations, which create problems Hmm. and creates us, you know, deepens the influence of sort of non-democratic sort of entities, which is a little bit challenging for sure. That's, That's somewhat new. And the money in politics as evidenced by what's happening right now in this presidential cycle, is exemplary of that. What, do you, mean, that what aside, are you thinking of when you say that, specifically? Well, I just think there, there's more, I mean, the pace of, the rationale for campaign finance reform is real because mm-hmm. there's a need to take that those special interest dollars out of politics and make sure that people are being, candidates are being elected by the people and not by companies or by other special interests. Okay. Um, I think that's a real challenge. On the other hand, I think what has happened today in some ways is a healthy thing because I think forces like technology have created more transparency than previously imagined possible. So in a world in which at any moment of the day I have a search tool at my desk like Google that makes any fact findable or I have a tool at my disposal like Blogger or other citizen journalism applications that allow me to write and to reach a wide audience in a way that was just never previously possible. Um, And the way that the cost of computing has gone down so that my BlackBerry is actually more powerful than the computers that put a man on the moon in in 1969. I mean, I think you're seeing technology create a level of transparency, 
create a level of connectedness and um, that's enabled by the decreasing cost of that technology. And that has a big impact. So today it's very difficult for a corporation to hide something from uh, watchdog groups or ordinary consumers. We just live in an environment of the super-empowered individual, as Thomas Friedman calls him, who can learn anything about anyone at any time. And that puts companies under the microscope. Okay. And, and I think what that also does is it creates an opportunity for companies to build a different kind of relationship with the public. And I say the public because I don't believe it's only about consumers who buy your product. I think it's also about the, uh, the vendors, if you will, who help you to build your products and services. I think it's the, maybe the customers who purchase them, the consumers who use them, the stakeholders who are influenced by them. I think forces like environmentalism and globalization have helped to make these things more obvious. And so today, the firms that think about, I'm going to create a value proposition that isn't just based on everyday low pricing, but a much richer value proposition that considers the needs of all these constituents, that becomes a very powerful opportunity. And I think Ethos is an example of the kind of business who its brand architecture, its DNA was embedded with uh, mission. It was imbued by a sense of authenticity, and it was really deeply wound up. There was commitment across its value chain. Mm -hmm. And maybe most importantly, it was really about engagement. So it wasn't just buy this water. It was this water will help children get water, and there are ways for you to participate and to get involved. And I would describe that as an ethical brand. And the advent of ethical brands, businesses whose whole architecture is based on values, is a very powerful development that I actually think augurs quite well. It's a, it's a new kind of company that holds great promise to make the world we live in a better place. But, you know, how do you think about the contradiction that perhaps one could view cynically that in order to... Um, to address in some way the crisis of water in the world um, and help children get clean water, as you say, you know, you are creating a new brand of bottled water, which is argu arguably part of the complicated, uh, or, or at least part of the picture that's going to complicate um, getting a solution to um, the shrinking water supply. I think it's a very fair question. I think that... Uh, in many ways, bottled water is simply a product of convenience. Mm -hmm. um, I've had people tell me they think it's an irrational product. Um, what I would say is that the way we looked at the uh, problem and there and we found the opportunity was as this market continues to grow, whether we like it or not. The a um, market of bottled water, premium bottled, bottled water. bottled water, mm -hmm. correct. If we could build a brand that would steal share from the large multinational corporations who dominate the category, and in stealing share, drive dollars back to children in need, and families in need around the world. We thought that was a pretty good outcome because those dollars would all be incremental dollars that otherwise wouldn't have flowed into uh, water programs, latrines, wells, hygiene education classes in places like Africa, Asia, Latin America, etc. Now, what I would say is that we tried to minimize our impact in every way that we could. So we locally sourced our water. We didn't port it in from the Fiji Islands or the French Alps. We, we, we obtained our water locally close to the customers so we'd minimize the carbon footprint and diminish the impact on any one particular water source. We tried to, you know, we evaluated biodegradable packaging options. 
We encouraged our consumers to recycle. I mean, we tried to take measures that we felt were meaningful. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, Peter and I started this business in my son's bedroom with our savings and, you know, uh, with our credit cards. Right. And we had never, uh, we had aspirations of grandeur, but to be frank, um, it had pretty humble origins. And we always believed that if we could, through ethos, make a difference in some way, if we could touch a child or touch a family or better yet, inspire a consumer here in the United States to get involved, that in and of itself would be worth the effort of trying. And so I'm pleased about the fact that our vision has really come to fruition. Mm-hmm. And the ethos is, an, again, I'm no longer involved with the brand. I know. Peter's doing an amazing job at Starbucks to lead it. But today it is an incredibly fast-growing brand that's taking share away from the market leaders and in doing so, as I've seen myself with my own eyes, helping children in Ethiopia, in Kenya, in Honduras, in India, and the list goes on. So it's definitely not perfect, but I would say progress, not perfection, okay. should be a mantra. Huh. I mean, you know, again, if, if you'll just allow me to uh, speak to you as a, as, a, as a voice of your generation, you know, as well as somebody who has your particular experiences. You know, I'm looking at, I was looking at um, the homepage for Good Magazine, where you are now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's a sentence, um, it says, you know, we see a growing number of people tied together not by age, career, background, or circumstance, but by a shared interest. This revolves around a passion for potential mixed with fierce pragmatism and creative engagement. I mean, mm-hmm. I think the fierce pragmatism is a really important part of that sentence. Yours is not mm-hmm. the idealism um, mm-hmm. of the 1960s uh, generation out to change the world. You know, how, right. how aware are you of that, of being part oh, of very, something? Are you? Yeah. Very aware. I mean, I think that the first half of the 60s, um, during the first half of the 60s, President Kennedy set up the Peace Corps. And I think that is a marvelous uh, role model in many ways for the ethos of service that we're talking about today. I think in the late 60s, the the model was protest. And I think that protest achieved great change in many ways. But today, it's really a model of proaction. Mm-hmm. And so what we seek to drive is what we call pragmatic idealism. There's nothing wrong with idealism, but it needs to be pragmatic and it needs to be focused and it needs to be with rolling up your sleeves, changing the world here and now. It's also, I mean, there's competition built into it too, right? Part of the strategy you mm-hmm. describe is mm-hmm. beating <laughs> beating mm-hmm. Evian and, uh, what is it, Fiji, yeah. Fiji Water Fiji, at sure, their game. Sure. I wouldn't name, you know, call them out right, by name, right, but, what I right. w- but what I would say is that, sure, I mean, I think this is a generation today that um, embraces the marketplace, that realizes the power of, Uh, market-based forces. And the question becomes, do we allow the market to run our lives or rather do we use the market to achieve social good? And, you know, it's a bit of an inversion of what Milton Friedmanism, on Friedmanism, which has dominated, I think, you know, economic theory for the past half century. He talks about that the purpose of a corporation is to generate profits for its shareholders. You know, and I teach this in my class at UCLA. I think the challenge of or the opportunity of today is that shareholders' interests have changed and they no longer think only about the bottom line. They realize that the bottom line needs to be considered on a more contextual basis. And so businesses that win in the marketplace will be those that deliver great products and services, make no mistake, 
They have to achieve profits and succeed in their categories. But at the same time, you can drive social good in a way that creates a tighter, richer, and more enduring value proposition for everyone. Um, and then I think, though, there must be uh, compromises and complexity that come with, with, with succeeding um, mm-hmm. at what you're doing. I mean, mm-hmm. Ethos Water was purchased by Starbucks. And there's a strategic partnership with PepsiCo now. Is that right? Correct. Um, and I wonder, um, and again, you're not there anymore, but you are not just aware of Ethos Water. You're dealing with all kinds of entrepreneurs all the time. I mean, mm-hmm. with that kind of growth and success and institutionalization, um, I wonder how much of a how much of a danger there is of some of the same kinds of greed and corruption um, that we have seen in some of these venerable businesses, um, venerable areas of commerce. You know, I don't even know what I'm, well, how, I think what form a, that might take, but I'm curious about well, it. I, well, I think there are a couple things. I think one of which is that, um, again, I think the, the business is being driven today by Peter, my business partner, mm-hmm. who is someone of the highest integrity, uh, who's had the initial vision for Ethos. So I have great faith that with his leadership, the brand will continue to scale and continue to seek new growth opportunities in a way that is consistent with, you know, our initial uh, vision. So I think that's number one. Number two, there's always an opportunity for risk, but I would rather try than not. And I think if we look at the world we live in today, the stakes are so high. Uh, Climate change, global development, political reform, the list goes on. I think what's encouraging about this generation is, though there is always risk, there's a willingness to roll up your sleeves and get in the game and try to make the world a better place and not think I only can do that by through volunteerism or Mm -hmm. I can only do that by politics, but I can also do that by starting businesses, by building companies, by taking a market-based approach. And in actuality, um, those might be the more effective ways to reach scale and develop reach and actually touch more lives. So are you aware of these um, anti-ethos water sites. Um, yeah, I've who, seen them. I've have seen you? Them. I mean, you know, them. so here's um, one of them that is kind of designed to look just like the Ethos Water site. Um, yeah. Helping children get clean water, question mark. Did you know that we are just a water bottling company? Did you know that we lure our customers into buying our water by selling them on the idea that they are helping the world's children? Ethos Water sells for $1.80 per bottle and only $0.05 cents goes towards the goal of donating $10 million over five years. Um, you know, on and on. That's right. We're going to make $360 million selling water on the premise that we're helping the world's children. Yeah, you know, I I think it's interesting. I guess it's sort of amusing when you try to fool people like that with those websites. But I guess here's what I would say. Okay. Peter and I took such great risk to get this business started, Peter more so than me. It was so painful on 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 my my relationship with my wife and both our families on our personal finances. And at the end of the day, because of what we've done, and again, I've met these children and talked to these families, ethos is driving dollars into water programs that are sustainable and scalable and impactful in developing countries across the planet. And had we not done this, those people wouldn't have benefited from, you know, drinking water, 
from better uh, sanitation, from hygiene, education. And so to those people who would protest and say, this seems like I'm not, I don't like ethos because it's part of the problem, not part of the solution, I say, bravo, then come join us. You start a better, uh, you start a company that will drive millions of dollars to help those people in need. You go petition Congress to pass the Water for the Poor Act. You think about a strategy to engage people. Because, I'm, again, I think pragmatic idealism isn't just about waving red flags. It's about saying, I'm going to spend my spring break in New Orleans. It's about saying, I'd rather go work for Teach for America when I graduate than some financial services firm. It's about saying, I'm going to spend my weekends volunteering for Senator Obama, or as it were for me 16 years ago, Governor Clinton. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's not about talking. It's about doing. So to those people who don't like ethos, I say don't drink it. But better yet, get involved. Do something. I mean, and again, you know, here's part of the context also that, um, let's say, I mean, you the the statistics are just are terrifying. Um, 1.2 billion people right now lacking clean drinking water. 2.5 billion lacking basic sanitation. And at the same time, and at the same time that. You know that that people like you and others are do you know doing many different kinds of projects, um, coming up with visions to address this in some way. Um, you know, you'll have a Goldman Sachs analysis calling water petroleum for the next century and mm-hmm. describing the great rewards uh, that are mm-hmm. out there for investors who know how to play this infrastructure boom. Mm-hmm. Does mm-hmm. that discourage you? Well. It certainly is a precious commodity. I think it's um, it's unfortunate when much of the world only seems to see it as such an economic good uh, rather than a social good. And I think there certainly is an argument to be made for those businesses that want to invest in water, that want to build infrastructure, and that make you know enjoy the benefits of those investments. At the same time, I would be more than I mean. I think it would be wonderful to see those same businesses put up matching funds or create other programs to while they are making money in the water game, making sure that everyone in the world has a right to affordable, clean drinking water. That would be a marvelous outcome because, you know, some people have said this to me before about ethos. They say, wow, the model's really imitable. Anyone can do that, right? Mm -hmm. And I say, Godspeed. Wouldn't it be marvelous if every multinational company that's making bottled water um, spend a couple cents per bottle to help fund water programs for children around the world. Wouldn't that be a marvelous outcome? And so if every firm that's investing in water, as it, as you described as the quote-unquote new petroleum, mm-hmm. was putting money aside to make sure that those in need had clean water, wouldn't that be a wonderful outcome? So, so yeah, so there's maybe a purist way to look at it and say, well, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if that disconnect between the way we would analyze the water crisis as a human crisis mm-hmm. or... The, or the way you can analyze it as an econo- economic opportunity, that that disconnect somehow collapsed, right? Yeah, but I think yeah. what you're saying is that that disconnect may always be there, and you're talking about operating on that assumption. Yeah. yeah, I think there may always be a disconnect by what some see as the economic sphere and what some see as the social sphere. What I would hope that we can do is try to build bridges between the spheres, because I think when we do that, when we create... Um, companies and build businesses that connect the two, 
how does one drive financial returns and at the same time achieve social good, I ultimately think those are more sustainable, more enduring value propositions that will resonate with consumers and have a greater chance of success in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. So it's my hope that, and I think you're seeing this with the wave of social entrepreneurism that has really flourished in the last few years. More businesses built on that very premise of bridging the divide. Um, now, you've been kind of talking, uh, um, you've been talking about this w- without naming it, but um, mm-hmm. another mm-hmm. thing that you have really challenged in terms of how you see the world and, and the um, projects you've been involved in, Ethos Water in particular, mm-hmm. is, you know, you've said we should demolish the mythology around top down aid-driven programs as the elixir mm-hmm. for global poverty. Quite simply, mm-hmm. the classic premise of aid to poor nations has failed. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, I think, is an idea that is growing. Um, I hear you saying it, articulating it very clearly, and that mm-hmm. being a way you've seen the world and constructed your own enterprises. Yeah, you know, I think that uh, when I studied these issues in college and then when I worked in the Clinton administration, Certainly on the front end, there was really a strong belief that it was aid that would solve the problem of global poverty. Mm-hmm. And the whole Bretton Woods system that we live with today, like the World Bank and the IMF, these institutions are built on the premise that aid is the strategy. It was the strategy to redevelop Europe and rebuild Japan, and it's the strategy to um, you know, uplift the poor. And I think you know, the, uh, the verdict is in. Aid is important, but aid is inadequate. Top-down aid is not the only solution. And in fact, if that's all you have, it will fail. I think then in the 90s, and I saw this up close, I worked on NAFTA, I worked on GATT, I worked on some other trade initiatives. There was a belief that if not aid, it will be trade Mm -hmm. that will solve global poverty and that we need to tear down tariff and non-tariff barriers, encourage investment, facilitate investment flows, and corporations by through technology transfer and more active trade can help uplift the poor. And I think that as an ideology, that as a silver bullet is also inadequate and wrong. Um, I think aid and trade are both important, but I do think what you're referring to and what I'm encouraged by has been the explosion of not aid or trade as a strategy, but what I call homemade solutions to solving poverty. And these are bottoms up, enterprise-driven approaches that leverage the entrepreneurial talent of local communities where it often exists and what it needs maybe is a little bump, a little acceleration, um, and things like microfinance can help to provide that. But I think the right mix of aid, trade, and homemade is really a more holistic approach to sort of solving the endemic issues of global poverty. So when you were, um, was this something that you built into your plan, to your strategy, as you thought about where the um, money you were donating from Ethos Water Profits would go? And Not so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think at Ethos we had some idea of this, and both Peter and I served on the board of the Starbucks Foundation that decided where the money would be allocated. But in fact, it's been more recent as I reflected on what I saw in the field through Ethos and my own experiences in the Clinton administration, mm-hmm. uh, where I started to see the trends today and met social entrepreneurs, trends today like microfinance, and met social entrepreneurs from amazing organizations like Ashoka or Acumen Fund or Kickstart or Endeavor, a number of great groups, that I really began to realize that if you look at the expanse of the landscape, again, bottoms up, 
grassroots-driven strategies and enterprises seem to have the greatest hope of making progress on the ground because, you know, there is no room for corruption. There Mm -hmm. are no room Mm -hmm. for handouts. It's people applying their own will and energy to improving the lives of their families and working with other people they know and who know them and will keep them accountable. Well, give me an example. Tell me about um, homemade. What did you say? Homemade homemade and and uh, homemade solutions. A-trade and homemade, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Okay, Okay. Um, so give us a picture of what that can look like. Sure. Well, one of my favorites is uh, a group that I mentioned a few moments ago called Kickstart, which is... um, actually has an, an office in San Francisco and is an organization started by two marvelous guys, uh, a gentleman by the name of Nick Moon and the other gentleman named Martin Fisher. And these were guys who had actually worked in the aid business before, but realized that homemade was really the approach to enable people to improve their livelihoods much more effectively than any top-down m- model. So they created something they call, uh, aptly enough, the super moneymaker. Uh, talk about marketing. It's a, it's a treadle pump that a villager, let's say in an area like sub-Saharan Africa, can use to irrigate sort of a very small local uh, area, let's say a quarter acre up to an acre. Literally a treadle pump that with your hip you can rock and you can bring water from a low-lying aquifer out of the ground to irrigate crops and to you know, enable produce in your, again, small garden, if you will. So it's a super moneymaker because of all the good things that can flow from it? Or- Exactly. Um, And it's amazing because it's very cheap to manufacture and they market it through like a franchise strategy and it has had a demonstrable impact on the lives of uh, families in places like Kenya and Tanzania and some of the other countries in sub-Saharan Africa where they've rolled it out. And so it's far too small and far too trifling for anyone from the World Bank to notice and yet it has had a massive impact on people. And, you know, I'll tell you that I've been involved as an advisor to an organization called the XPRIZE Foundation, Mm -hmm. and we've spent a lot of time looking at these models and are working on a prize concept. Uh, You may be familiar with XPRIZE. Oh, no. Uh, Yeah, say something about it. Just give a quick description. Oh, it's a fantastic organization that really pioneered in many ways the modern concept of prize philanthropy. So you put up a prize to solve a difficult problem. Say, for example, there hasn't been much, um, that's many breakthroughs in the aviation industry in recent times, particularly regarding space flight. So in 1996, the X Prize Foundation put out a $10 million prize to the first privately funded non-governmental team that could build a vehicle that could achieve suborbital altitude, 100 kilometers, twice within 10 days. And they did this because they wanted to catalyze the non-existent space industry, and use a sum of money to attract entrepreneurs and innovators to say, hey, look, we're going to reduce the risk. We're going to create a prize to attract innovation into this field. And sure enough, what that prize did in a very dramatic way was attract all of these risk takers, and 16 teams over eight years competed. And in order to win that $10 million prize in aggregate, they spent over $100 million worth of R&D. So... It was interesting because a $10 million prize drove great leverage. And, you know, Lindbergh flew across the Atlantic uh, in the first part of the 20th century to win a prize. And the (laughs) prize that the X prize, you know, was sort of standing on the shoulders of of that initial Ortega prize demonstrated the power of leverage philanthropy. And they've now launched X prizes to drive innovation in uh, clean technology, 
There's a $30 million Lunar X Prize sponsored by Google. There is a $10 million Genomics X Prize sponsored by uh, Archon, a company, mining company in Canada. And I've helped them to develop a concept to create an X Prize on poverty. Oh, you which have. is how can, hmm. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how can we use a prize concept to accelerate progress um, in this area to drive more homemade solutions to poverty and to encourage the forces that will catalyze this approach, this grassroots, bottoms-up approach to solving a really important global problem. <laughs> There's something in this that must appeal to an American imagination because you're using competition to do good, mm-hmm. to drive good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there's something counterintuitive about it as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, perhaps, perhaps. But I think, again, I think we live in this in, in this day and age of pragmatic idealism. Yeah. And that's what, quote-unquote, good is all about. It's not about saying there is one approach. It's not about saying it's only about green. It's not about saying you have to be a volunteer. It's taking a much more dimensionalized and I think a much more pragmatic approach to individuals, businesses, and nonprofits coming together to collaborate and move the world forward. Mm-hmm. Um, what's, where is that that project, the, the Poverty X Prize project? What, what stage is it in now? Uh, Sort of, we've uh, there's a whole methodology to how prizes are developed at the X Prize Foundation, but it's gone through the initial sort of gate, which is does this make sense to do? We believe it does, and now there's an effort afoot to structure the prize hmm. to develop the the rules, um, because these prizes only work when there's very simple and clear rules and a milestone that's easy to understand that that's achievable. So they're working on the rules design right now, and I'm you know as a CEO of Good. I'm full-time focused on building this business. But I know that my friends at XPRIZE are moving forward to try to make the poverty prize happen. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about Good. Um, good is, is not just a magazine, right? It's a multimedia yeah, it project. Not. It is. It is. We really think about Good um, as a collaboration of individuals, businesses, and nonprofits moving the world forward. It's uh, Good started as a magazine, it launched in September 2006 um, on the newsstand, uh, and it's been incredibly successful in its first two years. It's been incredibly successful because I think good blends entertainment and relevance in a way like no other media product, uh, meaning it's not just about socially conscious content. You know, it's not just about um, sort of preaching to people. Instead, it's got to be entertaining. It's got to be stimulating. It's got to be fun. And what Good is trying to do is blend entertainment and relevance in a way that reaches, again, there's a bit of a demographic skew to it, but reaches the broad community of people who are pragmatic idealists who want to move the world forward. And I think uh, an important dimension of that, and certainly to the time in which we live, Krista, is I think we live in a moment where we lose if we try to preach top-down to people and say, this is good, as in, Mm -hmm. you should buy this product, Mm -hmm. or you should green your home, exactly. Mm -hmm. Instead, our uh, dialectic is a conversation. And what we believe is not about us telling you this is good. Instead, it's about asking the question, what is good? And it's engaging in what I would describe as a member-driven dialogue with our community. And that approach, that bottoms-up conversational approach, is just fundamentally different than the way traditional 
top-down media thinks about um, the, the way they do their job. So I think we're taking a bit of a different approach that's very consistent with the direction in which the world is going and I think is the right approach relative to solving some of the great problems of our day. But I don't, I don't really, I mean, I know that this is a media project, but I actually see it more as mm, an endeavor to build a movement or catalyze mm-hmm, a movement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think, Yeah. Um, well, I think it's fair to say that oftentimes media can cut like the Ro- Rolling Stone in the 70s. Right, which I think helped to both cover the emergence of rock and roll culture and helped to catalyze it. Or another good example would be Inc. magazine in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, of the three founders of Good, the chairman of the company today is Ben Goldhirsch, who started the business, whose father was the publisher of Inc. magazine, oh. which in the early 80s, when small business really was the engine of growth, driving the country out of recession, I think Inc. both helped to cover that trend and as well to catalyze it and to accelerate it. Um, and so I think Inc. is a really interesting benchmark in a way. And, you know, even more recently, you could look at a, a, a marvelous uh, media product like Wired. And I think Louis Rosetto and Jane Metcalf, who started Wired, also were, at the, at the time, covering the emergence of sort of technology culture right. and helping to accelerate its ascendance into the mainstream. So I think Good has an opportunity to do something very similar here. And quite frankly, I think we are doing that today. And I think the reason why it's working is, again, that blend of entertainment and relevance. It's not about preaching to our community. It's about encouraging them to participate. And you that's talk about, you talk about um, the sensibility of giving a damn. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, and I think that speaks, you know, in a way that's sort of a euphemism for this pragmatic idealism. Right. <laughs> if we can make that sensibility the dominant sensibility, then I think not only do we win at good, I think everybody wins. Because, again, the problems we have in this moment in time are so colossal and complex. We need everybody to give a damn. We need everybody to get involved. What we won't do is tell you how you must do that. Instead, we'll just try to give you the pathways to find your route to giving a damn and to getting involved. So um, how do you measure success? And I mean, mm-hmm. you specifically. How do you, how, what do you look at right now that feels to you like success? And, and mm-hmm. how do you think about, um, you know, what you want to accomplish with this? And what oh, will matter? Because so I, do I, I don't think it's mm-hmm. just numbers, is it? I mean, no. It's not the no. biggest number of subscribers, which is the way you might have measured the success of a, of a media venture in a, another mm-hmm. generation. Yeah, well, I think there are a couple ways to think about it. Um, how do we measure success? One thing that Good has done that has been very, very smart, and it was a brilliant idea developed by the founders, um, was to invert some of the classic elements of the mainstream media model. So let me give you one example. Big media companies, uh, and I won't mention names, but large multinational corporations, spend a ton of money on direct mail to acquire new subscribers. 40 50 maybe $60. And then as often the case, and that's used to buy lists and to send mailings, and then as often the case, they'll basically give away the subscription. So once they lock you in, they spend $60 to acquire a new subscriber. You mean $60 per person that they're approaching? Per person, mm-hmm. per person. Then they'll say, and I'll tell you what, I'll give you 12 issues of my magazine for 12 bucks, or 10 bucks, or 8 bucks, which is, I mean, it's a lose-lose proposition. They're cutting down a lot of trees, 
and giving away a lot of money to acquire a subscriber, and they hope to make money on the back end, right, through advertising. Mm -hmm. Grow the base of readers. You can sell more ads. So good turned the model on its head. And the founder said, well, why should we cut down the trees and waste the money? Instead, and if we're just going to give away the subscriptions, instead of us giving away that money, why don't we allow our subscribers to give it away? They created a program called Choose Good, whereby a subscriber to Good Magazine, and you can go to www.goodmagazine.com and see this today, you spend 20 bucks to acquire a subscription, and then you get to choose um, the nonprofit to whom we will donate that money for you. Okay, so, so I was wondering how you could afford, what would be the business model behind giving away? Because you do advertise. You'll give a, mm-hmm. 100% of the subscription fee to the mm-hmm. charity of that choice. And you're saying that if Correct. it were a traditional model, you would be spending that money on luring that subscriber in the first place? Yeah, I would, the traditional model would be I would spend more money hmm. to lure the subscriber, and I would lose money on the subscription. Instead, okay. we don't spend any money on direct mail. We don't spend any money on paid media. Instead, we say it's a better use of our resources to allow our subscribers to give that money away. And that will engender trial. And maybe more importantly, that will align individual interests with the greater good. As in, I get a magazine and a media product that's actually really interesting and really compelling. And the level of engagement with our product, Krista, is through the roof. I mean, readers spend on average 90, 95 minutes with every issue which blows away the competition. Mm -hmm. But with that said, um, it's also not only about getting a great product, but I've I've deepened my relationship with Teach for America or Ashoka or NRDC or Room to Read or any number of the nonprofits with whom we work. So again, good is about, just like Ethos Water, by the way, it's a great bottle of water that helps children get water. And good is a great media product that allows you to do good in the world, you know, with every issue that you read. So uh, I want to ask you how you react to the cynicism that comes your way as well with this kind mm-hmm. of venture, right? I mean, this mm-hmm. word earnest mm-hmm. has been thrown mm-hmm. around in the New York Times mm-hmm. and uh, on uh, Gawker, um, mm-hmm. that you're grating earnestness. Sure. Um, right, right. What is that about? And I mean, well, I get it. And I also wonder how you think of that as a phenomenon, this, this cynicism that comes at what you're trying to do. Listen, I think skepticism is healthy. Mm-hmm. I think that there's utility to sort of asking hard questions and being really sober about the quote unquote new, new thing. Um, so I have no problem with that. I think we should expect it. And the fact of the matter is, if the, uh, if the integrity is there, if the results are there, that's the best way to respond to the skepticism. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this year, later this summer, the Choose Good campaign will have raised over a million dollars for these nonprofits, right? That's a million dollars of incremental funds to some of the best organizations in the world. So you're going to make, you know, the planet a better place. And more importantly, that is, you know, hundreds of thousands of readers who are more informed who are more engaged, who are more likely to participate in making the world a better place. And so you can say that, wow, that's very earnest or that's very idealistic or that's very starry-eyed, but you know what? The results speak for themselves. And I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to be at good, to be part of an organization that's making such great change in the world. I I feel really lucky. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then again, in this world of... um 
that falls under this large umbrella of socially conscious business. Um, mm-hmm. There are things legitimately to be cynical about. There's a new mm-hmm. a new word, greenwashing. Mm-hmm. I was kind mm-hmm. of interested that the language mm-hmm. of religion has seeped into the way people sure. talked about this, right? There was an environmental marketing company, Terra Choice, that uh, identified the six sins of greenwashing. <laughs> <laughs> and there was, you know, hidden trade-offs, vagueness, irrelevance, fibbing, or the lesser of two evils. An example of that would be organic cigarettes. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I think mm-hmm. there's been some... Um, I've heard you speak in other venues about some of the issues that have been raised about uh, around GAP's red campaign, for example. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I mean, talk to me about that, and what is that? What, what did those pitfalls also tell you about, um, or what did these experiences tell you about the, the potential dark side of this new way of, fu- this new fusion of capitalism and social action that you're also part of? Well, I think it's funny, because you asked me earlier about corporations being increasingly sort of corrupt, or we're seeing more criticism. I think in many ways technology is accelerating the trend of transparency. Um, and so I think for companies that think they can simply slap a CSR, you know, corporate social responsibility program into their organization and that will solve their problems, I think that's bound to fail. Because I think in the world in which we live today, um, where things are increasingly transparent and consumers are increasingly educated and empowered, um, they won't, they'll see through uh, efforts that lack authenticity and they'll really right away discern what's quote unquote sort of cause marketing yeah. or a defensive greenwashing tactic versus something that's embedded with a sense of mission and purpose and is really driving change. So I think, you know, the Gap Red campaign, which I have deep respect for, by the way, they're doing enormous good work around the world in the fight against HIV, AIDS, you know, tuberculosis, and malaria, and yet the lack of transparency here in the U.S. about their economics and their business model has created great pain. I think if, and I know, you know, Bobby Shriver and Tamsin, who run the organization, um, if they had come clean up front and said, this is exactly how the model works, that probably would have saved them a lot of grief. Well, say some more about that. I don't don't know the ins and outs of it. What was it that they weren't up front about? Well, I think that there are... Again, the Red Campaign is such a marvelous effort in so many ways. To the best of my mind, it's the first truly cross-industry cause marketing campaign that I've ever seen. Their ability to build relationships with The Gap and with Apple and with Motorola and Oakley and Armani and American Express, some marvelous organizations. And the products that those organizations sell that are quote-unquote red drive dollars to the Global Fund to fight HIV, AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. What a terrific initiative. The challenge is only that when you walk into the Gap and you buy a T-shirt or you walk into an Apple store to buy a red iPod or now when you order a Dell computer that's red, it's not always exactly clear about what the economics of that arrangement are. So how much money goes to the global fund and how is that money being used? Mm -hmm. Um, That was some of the initial criticism. I think they've gone to great lengths to try to address that and they're trying now to be more transparent And they're using social networking and blogging to try to provide better exposure into what's actually happening with the dollars donated through through the red products. But with that said, if they had taken that approach on the front end, it might have been a lot easier for the organization. So, you know, this is kind of a question that comes out of my my experience. I don't know if we'll make it onto the radio, but um, I've Uh observed... (laughs) 
that some of the that some organizations that do the best work in the world can uh-huh. be most dysfunctional. Uh, <laughs> right, right. Like term, our families, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, in terms right. of power relationships and the way people treat each other, mm-hmm. um, I've actually thought that there would be a show to do on called uh, "The Problem of Evil in the Workplace." Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just that it's just that any institution becomes a place that we interact with each other when we bring we bring the dark side of the human condition to work as well right. as the great side. Right. I'm just curious if you think, um, you know, as you're as you're speaking, I'm I'm wondering also if some of these things that technology makes possible, transparency, um, and also the the bottom up rather than the top down model of mm-hmm. even institutional mm-hmm. life, mm-hmm. if that might be, um, if that might enable organizations, even companies that are doing good, to to in fact remain better places as well than I think Mm -hmm. workplaces have been very prone to becoming traditionally? I I hope so. I mean, I don't know that I know the answer to that, but I I hope that more communication Mm -hmm. and a realization that, you know, the the, the benefits of transparency rather than obfuscation, I think those things in the end uh, are better for organizations and are better for individuals there may be some pain to get to that point. Well, there will be pain, right? These, I mean, there will. For sure. Yeah. For sure. For sure. But I think ultimately these tools that connect us and that bring people together are more powerful than the previous world in which people were disconnected and uninformed. So I'm optimistic about the utility of those tools, I think. Mm-hmm. Here's another question I have. Looking at goods site, uh-huh. um, I look at the topic areas. You know, mm-hmm. you get that topic breakdown, and you've got politics, business and money, health, technology, mm-hmm. buying, environment, science, art and design, mobility, media, mm-hmm. culture, education, mm-hmm. living. Yeah. Um, and I've had the same reaction looking at newspaper sites. Where's Where's religion in there? Where are religion <laughs> and spirituality? Well, it's very interesting you should say that, um, because I think that there is um, really an undercurrent of spirituality that connects all of these things, you mm-hmm. know, a belief in the value of humanity, a belief in our ability to make progress. I think today, oftentimes with young people, it can be sort of an unspoken spirituality because I do think that we live in an increasingly secular environment in many ways. And what I actually might proffer is that good is a fabric that brings people together in a way that, especially when young people reach that inflection point, say when you graduate from college and you're coming to the quote-unquote big city and seeking community, that what we do at Good through our media, whether you're reading our magazine, whether you're browsing our website, whether you're watching our videos, or, you know, if you come to our events, Krista, our business has a robust set of live events that we do that literally, you know, uh, when people aren't social networking, if you will, or poking each other on Facebook, yeah. it's, it's congregating in the real world. I think that's really the biological imperative. It's what people um, for, you know, millions of years have been programmed to do. It's to come together as individuals, as human beings. And so our live events business is the physical manifestation of our community. And so I think spirituality is almost an undercurrent through everything that we do, a shared sense of the human potential and human purpose. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we're almost providing, I think, the sense of community that particularly among young people, they might not be finding actively in organized religion today. And if we can be that fabric to bring people together, 
I think that's a wonderful thing. Hmm. So it, I don't want to say that it's supplanting spirituality, but rather I think maybe it's sort of a new um, iteration of spirituality in this 21st century. Right, and it's not a distinct category also is what you're saying. It's, it's, it, it has its place perhaps in all the other categories as it has its yeah. place in every aspect of life. Actually, this is also really important um, because I think that good is about an inclusive uh, spirit. And it's about aggregating people from different walks of life, you know, from different sort of corners of the world. And so whereas an old notion of spirituality might be, you belong to that church, and I attend that synagogue, Mm -hmm. and I pray at that mosque. Today, it's, hey, we're all good. Hmm. We're all in this together. And that shared sense of humanity and that sense of a common agenda is, I think, a really important aspect of what animates uh, me as an individual, what animates good as a company, what animates our brand. It's a desire to bring people together um, because, again, there aren't multiple communities. In fact, we get down to we're all part of the same community and we all got to solve these problems together. Hmm. So you're kind of a post-identity politics <laughs> adventure as well. It's, that's interesting. We thought about it as post-partisan in a way. Yeah. I haven't heard the term post-identity I, before, I think I but... just made it up. Just give me there credit you if you ever use it. Post- okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, look, I'm going to listen in my headphones for a minute and see if there are okay. questions for you behind the glass. So I'll be quiet, okay. and then I'll be cool. back in just a second. We'll okay. close down. Okay. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's interesting. Okay. Okay. Great. I got lots of questions. Okay, great. Um I have a bunch of we have a cast of thousands here behind the glass. Chris, that's cool. They're and all I also smart. thought <laughs> I take it as such I also thought about a couple things that I want to make sure I okay. mention to all you right. as well. Good. So. Well we have about twenty minutes left, so we have time. Okay. Um okay, here's wondering if you um well let me look at the order of this. Um Um, okay, uh, just, um, do you, you know, we spoke at the very, when you and I first began to speak, we t- you talked about American exceptionalism, which was something you became uh-huh. aware of. Mm, but this, this sensibility of fierce pragmatism that you describe, mm-hmm. I think is mm-hmm. also, 
you know, is a very American thing, very American mm. way of being in the world. And I just, mm. the, the question is, um, wondering when you are out in the places you go, I mean, you've mentioned, I don't know, Ethiopia and other places. I mean, do you mm-hmm. sometimes have to check yourself, um, your, your impulses and your way of being good and doing good, um, also, in order to to be to be re- responsible and responsive um, in other cultures, um, can you elaborate on what you mean by that? Um, I, I mean, yeah, because I think you know, fierce. Pra- I mean, if you ask me, what's fierce pragmatism? Mm-hmm. You know, fierce pragmatism is the villagers I met in southwestern Honduras in two thousand and two thousand and four. I went to see a year later, and thanks to the water system that our money had helped to fund. You know, they had their kids going to school. They were growing crops they hadn't before. They had more livestock. That, to me, is fierce pragmatism. Okay. You know, fierce pragmatism, to me, is seeing these, meeting these, call them water activists, teaching hygiene educations in the most desolate, isolated region of Ethiopia on the border of the Sudan, who, despite all of the travails of their time, again, literally are teaching water education to their fe- to the villagers and to other villagers who they visit on a regular basis, um, that's fierce pragmatism. So I don't know that it, fierce pragmatism and American exceptionalism are the same phenomenon. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think they're actually pretty different. Okay. Um, I what is what is actually a sobering uh, rebuke to American exceptionalism is when you see the incredible progress uh, and the incredible potential of people in all corners of the world, and you realize that again we're all just human beings. And the 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 gratitude we should all have for the time and the place in which we're born, which I think is nothing other than you know luck, um, because beyond that, it's it's fierce pragmatism which allows people to live hmm. you know fruitful and potential lives of high potential. Okay, um, you know you were Mitch. Are you okay with that tapping? It was just yeah. Let's just okay. <laughs> you were you were tapping your pencil to remember oh, about Honduras. Right. I'm going to just let that go because that's real. Okay. That's just real. Um, um, do you, do you struggle with, um, um, taking the way you're thinking and other people like you are thinking about business or this fierce pragmatism, this fusion of, um, doing good and, and also, Turning a profit. Um, mm-hmm. Is there a tension um, with, you know, with Wall Street? I mean, with, with mm-hmm. what still is, um, st- still are the kind of primary institutions. Um, how, how does that work? I think so in a way, and in a way I think not. So I think there is some tension with traditional institutions who don't really understand how to place a value on a business that donates its subscription revenue, right? Mm-hmm. Or that or a bottled water company that would donate part of its revenue. I think that can often be hard for people who um, are steeped in Friedmanism to understand. And I think the capital markets of social enterprise um, are still quite nascent and young. So it's hard to figure out how do you classify this kind of a company? And there are people doing interesting work in this regard. Uh, People like Jake Gilbert, the founder of B Corp, thinking about how do we define a new class of companies Mm -hmm. that aren't just for profit, but are perhaps for benefit. Or people who are teaching classes at business schools um, who are 
uh, you know, communicating these ideas to the next set of, uh, you know, uh, entrepreneurs and executives. And there are other things afoot. So the capital markets of social enterprise, I believe, are beginning to evolve, but that's going to take time. So in some ways, I do think that there is some tension. On the other hand, I think um, good and ethos and businesses like ours stand on the shoulders of um, Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield, who started Ben and Jerry's. Um, I think we stand on the shoulders of Gary Hirschberg, who started Stonyfield Farms, of the Roddicks, who started The Body Shop, of Paul Hawken, who starts with The Hawken. And I say that because there have been other examples of breakthrough brands that were based on social change. What's different now is the proliferation of these kinds of companies. Yeah, I was going to ask you, I mean, another generation of of business leaders and entrepreneurs had a role model or kind of a... mm, philosophical guiding figure in Greenleaf and the idea of mm-hmm. servant leadership. And um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what you're talking about is our uh, role models in terms of people who really kind of created enterprises differently from the ground up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. I mean, I think, again, some of the names that I mentioned, like the Roddicks or Hirschberg or Cohen, mm-hmm. these are people who, from the ground up, uh, they've built businesses whose brands are are embedded with a sense of mission and purpose, and that makes them fundamentally different than businesses who just adopt one trait, if you will, or one new management style. The whole companies are crafted on this idea of creating social good and financial return. Mm-hmm. And you know, even today, you can look at market leaders, and though the stocks have taken a beating, Starbucks, which gave healthcare to all its employees at great cost, or Whole Foods Market, which has been a darling of Wall Street for many years. Um, I mean, there are others that have demonstrated that you can achieve scale and you can impress the street while maintaining a balance between sort of benevolence and uh, profit. Okay. And do you think that examples like that, I mean, do you like to imagine that that would ultimately change the way even, say, a Goldman Sachs would... I mean, you know, we're pretty far, far from the water crisis at this point in the conversation. Mm-hmm. But that that it would change the way even that kind of analysis would be made. Yeah, I think that's that's a great question, Krista. And so I think where this goes is as more brands like Good or Ethos or others get traction, it creates a new sense of consumer expectations, and it changes the game in terms of how the public views organizations. And if you try to patch on a CSR strategy, it will fail. But if you build a business that from start, you know, endeavors to create social good, it will succeed and the market will reward you for that. And so I do think that whether it's the businesses I've been been fortunate to be involved with or others, the more success, the more market acceptance, the more we change the game forever. I really don't think this is a movement. I don't think this is a fad. I think this is a shift. And as we accelerate that shift, there's a new equilibrium that Wall Street to, you know, business schools to uh, the business press all will then follow. Okay. Um, you said you, you had a couple things you wanted to yeah, add? Yeah, I think a couple things I should add. I okay. mean, one of the questions that you asked me about sort of the influences on my life, and I mentioned uh, my grandfather, you know, was a refugee from Nazi Germany and uh, growing up in an observant household. One of the things that's also been interesting in my life is my wife has had a very similar experience. 
So my wife is originally from Iran, and uh, she's Persian, and she's Jewish. And her mm-hmm. family had lived in Iran and practiced Judaism for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And then with the Islamic Revolution, life was very hard for them. And my wife actually, under a fake passport that said she was a Muslim, she escaped <laughs> uh-huh. um, during the Iran-Iraq War, fled to Europe, and came to this country as a political refugee. And I think for me, I mean, when I grew up in Connecticut, there were no Iranians. The only Iranians <laughs> were the ones, you know, on television. And certainly no Persian embassy. Jews. <laughs> certainly no Persian Jews. Right. I didn't know there was such a thing. <laughs> right. Um, but I think for me, it's just interesting because, I guess two reasons. Number one, it's a reminder for me that uh, we live in a world of displacement. And particularly, you know, the Jewish people have been subject to this for millennia. And, you know, my wife and our kids are uh, an interesting affirmation of what's possible, but at the same time a reminder of, you know, what's been a historical precedent. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting having a grandfather who is a refugee, now having a wife who's a refugee. Different environments, different times, yet some real common denominators. Mm -hmm. Um. So I think that's something that I wanted to mention because not only is it interesting in that it's a reminder of this th- theory or this um, this theme of displacement, but also when ethos was hard, <laughs> when when times were tough, when I was thinking about taking out a second mortgage on my home, my wife said, my wife Marjan, she said, you think this is hard? Try a refugee camp, you know, mm-hmm. try living through anti-aircraft uh, you know, gunfire, you know, in bomb shelters, et cetera, et cetera. Try living through a revolution. She said, ethos, the startup, this is easy. Okay. <laughs> you don't know hard. Mm. So mm. that was interesting. And I think I also should just mention, because you asked me about my life, we really are, we're, observant seems like a strong word, but we go to synagogue every Saturday. We keep a kosher home. We, my kids go to Jewish day school. And so Judaism for me is, both a, a, a way that we, it's a way that I live my life and it's an ethos, if you will. And it's also ritual that we practice on a, on a daily, on a daily basis. So. Okay. Um, I think I want to ask you as we close, um, I am going to ask you what, what, if you just look around the world right now and just knowing what you know, um, encountering what you do, doing this work right now with good, um, and in your life, um, what gives you hope? And I'd like you to, you know, tell me a story or um, something that happened to you last week or today. But I'd, I'd first like to ask you what, you know, what, because this has been, um, you are a pragmatist and you um, tend to look for the opportunity and what can be made right. But what, what does um, cause you to feel despair i mean what is what is dark out there that uh that kind of stumps you and keeps you awake mm-hmm. at night maybe keeps you going as well mm-hmm. so what's dark i look at the amount of money that our country is spending today uh, fighting wars in the middle east and i look at this you know 20 30 40 50 billion dollars and i think about how just a month of that funding could be put to solve the clean water crisis across this planet and I think that would achieve more good for America and for the world than in, 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 in ways we can't even begin to imagine versus the way we're squandering our, our political capital, our material capital, our reputational capital on you know, very difficult to justify endeavors. 
So I feel dark about misplaced priorities that our government has engaged upon. Um, I feel dark about uh, the challenges we face, like environmentalism and the threat of climate change. At the same time, I feel great hope. I mean, so many of my friends who were in the Internet world just 10 years ago, they're now all in the clean tech world. Really? They're all seeking to build. Oh, yeah. They're all seeking to build businesses, and they're doing it. They're succeeding. Um, like a friend who runs a business called Living Homes, which is building clean prefab that actually generates more energy than it consumes, which is an amazing thing to think about a house <laughs> as a source of energy for the grid, not taking it. Or another friend who started a solar company called Energy Innovations, which is driving great innovation in that field. So I feel hope when I see the energy and entrepreneurism going to solve these great problems. I feel hope when I see the, the sort of the groundswell of activism around issues like Darfur or even issues like uh, clean water where you have people at the college level and communities and institutions of faith who are coming together and speaking up in a way that before maybe wasn't quite as uh, common. And I, lastly, I feel great hope when I look at good. And, you know, just uh, about a month ago, I got an email from my friend John Wood. He runs Room to Read. And he uh, shared with us that... Uh, oh, Room to Read is a marvelous nonprofit that builds libraries and schools in the developing world as well as gives um, scholarships to chil- to girls mm-hmm. to get primary and secondary education. Right. And uh, we've, um, through our readers, uh, driven a fair amount of money to, uh, to Room to Read because they're doing such marvelous work. And he sent us a note letting us know that they had named a new library at a school in Cambodia after good. Our dollars helped to fund it, and there's you know, dozens of children who are now able to read um, on a regular basis, in part because of the financial support that we provided. And to think that, you know, it's great when I meet someone at a conference or when someone comes up to me at a party or a meeting and says, wow, I, I, I love good, I'm inspired by the content, it really affects me. It's exciting to get the emails and letters from our, uh, from our community. But it's most exciting to think about some child in Cambodia who's touched by the work that we do in a way that she might never even know but that, in my mind, is the sort of like the highest form of tzedakah when you give to someone who do, you give to someone you don't know, and they don't know who the gift was from. Mm. And to think that we're achieving that almost transcendent level of impact, in my mind, is is very uh, is very hopeful. I mean, maybe that's the answer to this question, also. But you know, if I just ask you, what do you what do you know, or what have you learned? Um, what do you keep seeing that? is simply never going to make the headlines, is never going to be on the front mm-hmm. page of the New York Times, mm-hmm. but you feel is, mm-hmm. is as essential or more mm-hmm. essential than those things that mm-hmm. will make headlines. What comes to mind? I think what comes to mind are the comments that I would get when I walk through a Starbucks store and I see baristas who remember me from Ethos and say, God, you know what? I want you to know I was so inspired by what you're doing that I actually made a donation to WaterAid or some water-related charity. Or when I go, as happened to me actually not too long ago, I spoke at an event in Pittsburgh and some kid came up to me and said he started a beverage company that donates part of its profits to fund water programs because he was he heard about and was inspired by ethos. Or when I meet people who learn about good and who explain how reading an article on slow food 
moved them to take a more, quote-unquote, local approach to their cuisine. I mean, it's all these little vignettes that in on their own don't seem like much. But in aggregate, when you put it together, I think you see the fabric of uh, what Paul Hawken called in his book last year, Blessed Unrest. You see the contours of a movement where people are empowered by technology and I think inspired by examples are taking action to change their own lives. And again, on its own, doesn't make the page front page of the New York Times. But when you step back and you see the breadth and the texture of that movement, you realize, again, it is a shift. And if that shift continues, I think the world is a much better place. Okay. Okay. Um, got, I'm going to be quiet for a minute again. Yeah. In 2004 in Honduras. Mm-hmm. Um, there was this a sound which is um, uh, going to be which the listener won't understand. Um, when okay. you were, I think you were tapping your pencil, um, okay. and you were saying, but what was it? I think you were saying. Oh, oh yeah, you were saying fierce pragmatism. Sure. I was in. It was when I was in. I remember it. But I sure. Was, just I'll the, tell you. Okay, just start the story again. You just need to start it again about just get us get us to Honduras in two thousand four. Sure, 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 sure. Okay. So. I mean, as we think about um, what is it, what is American exceptionalism versus fierce pragmatism? In my mind, fierce pragmatism is a trip I took to Honduras in uh, December 2004 when Peter and I went. Okay, that's it. That's how I knew. We can do better. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much. This was great. Well, this was really cool. It was really fun. You know, it's, uh, it's, you, you ask really interesting questions. I mean, I do you know, a little bit of press and a little bit of public speaking. And it's it's always gratifying when you have someone on the sort of the other side, if you will, who has done their homework and asks not the obvious, but the more provocative, more thoughtful questions. It's harder for me, but it's much more enjoyable. Yeah, well, we're much all about enjoyable. conversation as opposed to sound bites. So, which is... That's very cool. <laughs> um, very neat. Yeah, and we have a... I don't know if you've seen our website. We have a fabulous website and our, a pretty mm-hmm. multimedia um is what we do pretty multimedia things with our content. So you've been talking to, I believe, Shiraz, right? Yes. And so um, he'll, well, yeah, we communicate Shiraz email, will be correct. letting you know what's happening. And um, if we have some follow-up questions, you'll, they'll come through him. That sounds great. Okay, thank you. Listen, thanks so much for your time, Krista. I appreciate it. Yeah, I do too. Bye-bye. Have a great afternoon.